Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, The surety of Jesus' return to destroy all his and our enemies is an important truth for life in the present. Because we know that God will perfectly judge his foes, we can leave vengeance in his hands and show patience and even love towards our enemies. So I want you to welcome me back to this little short series uh, on Christ titled The Lion and the Lamb. And, And no, we have not finished the book of Romans yet. We are still in chapter 11 but we're taking a short break from Romans to spend a few weeks exploring um, the gospel. I mean, excuse me, it was during Romans we have spent many weeks exploring the gospel in depth, and, and we're taking a break from that in order to ponder and think through an, an, an essential part of the gospel. And that essential part is the character and the nature of Christ Jesus, or in other words, who is Jesus? And, and, and I know that's a simple question, but it's really important Because the identity of Christ is essential to our faith. In order to come to saving faith in Jesus, we must know who He is. Because He is the one and the only one that can bring sinful man and a holy God together. He is the one who bridges the chasm that lays between God and man because of our sin. And as we've learned from from our extensive study of the gospel, God created us, all of us, special in His image. And He created us to be in relationship with Him. We were created for an intimate, up-close, personal relationship with the living God. But as we know from the gospel, that relationship has been destroyed because of our sin. The sin that we willingly have engaged in. The rebellion in which we we willingly participated in. And it's because of our sin and our rebellion, God's justice and His judgment and wrath hangs over all of our heads because we rightly deserve to be punished and cut off from God because of the things that we have done. And what is worse is there's nothing, nothing, nothing you can do, nothing I can do to fix it on our own. We cannot save ourselves by being obedient to the law. We cannot make ourselves lovely before God and the things that we do. We can't be loving enough and compassionate enough and accepting enough and selfless enough. We can't reconcile ourselves to God by by being religious either. The world is filled full of religious people who are still as far away from God as they started. There is literally nothing we can do on our own to change our doom. That is why Paul said that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't even change our own hearts. But God being rich in mercy, the good news, as Paul says, God being rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. God sent his son into the world to live the perfect righteous life that we were required to live, but we couldn't live He lived that life to earn a righteousness for us. And then he went and died on the cross to wash us clean of our sin and then rose again, proving that we could be reconciled to God, that the way 
is open as we sang this morning. The veil was torn. And the promise of God is that all of those who turn away from their self-righteousness and turn to Christ by faith will be saved. That's the promise. That's the glorious promise of the gospel that all that, that who turn from their self-righteousness and put their faith in Christ, those who were once enemies are now at peace with God. And so Jesus is literally the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only one who can save us from our sin and the wrath of God. And only he can reconcile us back into the relationship with God as family. But even more, only Jesus can bring us through this life safely home to the place where we ultimately belong to the place that we ultimately in our heart of hearts long for. Only he can make all things right. You see, the truth is, we all know, we all understand instinctively that there is something wrong with this world. Even though we live here and now, and even though we, we by the grace of God, may experience many good gifts even though that we at times can experience great joy with those that we love, like graduation. We know, in spite of these things, that the world is still broken. And for, for all the good that we experience and the joy that we feel, for all of that, we also experience the effects of the fall in every part of our life. We've all experienced our share of pain and, and heartache. That's why letting go, I think, is so hard. All of us have been deeply affected by, the, by evil and pain and suffering. And as a result, all of that is the result of the effects of sin. Let's be honest. We all know what it's like to be betrayed by people that we love and care about. Whether, whether it's a family member or a longtime friend. We all know the pain that comes from close relationships that have been splintered into a million jagged pieces that might not ever get put back together again. Relationships have been, been destroyed for stupid reasons. We have relationships like that with family members. We have, we have relationships with friends that are like that. And these fractured relationships break our hearts and spirits to the core. They wound us so deeply that we wonder if we're ever, ever going to be able to find the end of the grief that we feel. I think we've all been there in those moments where we feel like we'll never, ever stop grieving. The pain is a sign that there is something fundamentally wrong with our world. And the same can be said with the illnesses that, that plague so many of us and the, those that we love, heart conditions, strokes, cancer, autoimmune disorders, neurological disorders, chronic depression, anxiety, joint pain, muscle pain, nerve pain, memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's. And we can just go on and on with the list. Every one of us has been directly or indirectly impacted by the effects of chronic illness. We're praying for many people right now who are suffering that way. These are the horrific things that, that we go through, and they're, they're horrific to watch those that we love suffer through these things. And it's during those times that we look to heaven and we ask God, where are you? How long will this last? When will this be over? 
When will we be in a place where this doesn't happen anymore? In addition to all those things, and there's the trauma and the pain of losing the people that we love. The thing, the fact is, is life is a terminal disease. Now we do love, we do lose some of those that we love in a ripe old age, where we get a chance to say goodbye, where we get a chance to to watch them go gracefully. But then there's those times where we where we lose someone that we love that have gone from us unexpectedly, who have been taken suddenly and tragically. And we all know the heartache of that. We've all experienced that heartbreak, the pain that we feel is a sign that there is something not right with the world, not to mention crime. Right here in Boron, right just down the street, The world is filled full of crime and violence and war and injustice and poverty and racism and human trafficking and isolation and loneliness and mental illness. And again, we can just continue to list all of the things that are wrong and broken with the world that's around us because of sin. And and, and we need someone to save us from our sin and the penalty of that sin, which is the wrath of God, but we need someone to save us from the effects of that sin in this fallen world. And the only one that can save us, the only one who can accomplish all of that is the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so who Jesus is in his character and nature is absolutely central to every part of your faith. We must know Jesus intimately and personally, not just some character named Jesus. We must know the real son of the living God. And so with that, we're taking a few weeks to to dive in and explore this question about who Jesus is as revealed by the scriptures. And we started off in the first part by talking about the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is truly and fully God, and he is the one who came on the rescue mission to save us. God didn't send somebody else. He came himself. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, came to save us. And the second part of the series, we talked about how Christ is not only God, he is fully man as well. The divine mystery, how God took on a full human nature is not something we can fully wrap our head around, but we just believe by faith. That's what the scriptures tell us. God the Son came into the world and took on a full human nature and became one of us, but without sin. And it's important for us because Jesus, Son of God, became, since He became fully man in its fullness, that means He could fully identify with us, which means He was able to live for us so that we could be righteous and He could identify with us so that He could stand in our place and take upon Himself the penalty that we rightly deserve. And then the last time we talked, last time we were together, we talked about how Jesus is all that we need. That he is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, as the prophet, reveals who God is and his will for us. Jesus, as the priest, reconciles us to God as a sacrifice. And Jesus, as as, as king, brings peace, justice, and righteousness to those in the kingdom. 
And one of the things that the scripture makes clear is we need Jesus to be all three. We need him to be prophet. We need him to be priest. We need him to be our king. And, and the last time we talked about this, we, we looked at Mark chapter 11, where, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of specific prop, prophecy and, and declared by his actions that he was the rightful king. And everybody knew it. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's why the whole city was electric with anticipation. That's why people were shouting Hosanna. And that's why Jesus' enemies resolved at that time they needed to get rid of him. Because he was clearly saying, the king has come. And that king is Jesus. But the thing that we need to understand as we move on today is when Jesus came riding on a donkey, this was highly symbolic because a king riding on a donkey was a, was a sign of peace. A king riding into the city on a donkey was a, was a sign that he was coming in peace. But a king riding on a horse in that culture was a sign of war. And so Jesus, the Messiah, in the triumphal entry, Recorded in the gospel, rides into the city peacefully, humbly on a donkey. But, when, but what we're going to see in Revelation 19 is when he returns, when, when the king comes back, he doesn't come riding peacefully, humbly on a donkey. He comes riding furiously on a white horse prepared for war. You see, Jesus returns when he, when he comes back. He will still be the king, but he comes back as the warrior king the conquering king. And this right here, brothers and sisters, this is an important part. This is an important part of Christ's identity for us. It's an important part for us to, to think about. It's an important part for us to acknowledge and to look forward to. The fact that Jesus, not only is a king, but is a warrior king. This is an indispensable part of his identity, as we will see. But this right here is the part of, the, of Christ's identity that so many people, including many in the church and many who call themselves Christians, do not want to acknowledge. They want to ignore or just simply pretend doesn't exist. This is the part of Jesus that offends so many people because this is the image of Jesus that everybody wants to think about. Right? The image of Jesus that many people want, the, the fair-haired, soft-skinned, gentle Jesus that is soft-spoken and never, ever wants anybody but to be upset. The Jesus that most people imagine. Now, the truth is, as we know in our modern culture, that Jesus was not fair-haired, right? And he certainly wasn't soft-skinned. He was a first-century Middle Eastern man. And he was a carpenter by trade, which means he was very strong and probably had very rough hands. And he certainly wasn't a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European guy, right? But the truth is, Jesus was certainly loving, 
And he was certainly compassionate. And he certainly loved children as we have read in the Gospels. And he certainly could be tender. But this caricature of Jesus is the one that the world loves. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus who never raises his voice. Jesus who never offends anyone. Jesus who said that there, there, there is 11 commandments and the 11th one is thou shalt be nice. The Jesus who never called people to, put, to, to, to repent of their sin. The Jesus who, who, who just gently, sweetly knocks on the door pleading, please, please, please let me come in because I need you. Vodi Bauckham, in one of his sermons, calls this the sissified, needy Jesus of America. This is the image that, that the world loves. This is the image that, that, that of Jesus that, that many people who call themselves Christian believe in and, and hold on to. This image that the world points to when they say, you're not like Jesus. How many of you as a Christian ever been said that, been told that before, right? That's not very Christ-like of you. That's what they're thinking about right there. This tender, non-confrontational character. Now again, it is true that Jesus is loving and compassionate and gracious beyond our imaginations. And he is tender toward his people. I praise the Lord for that. But that's not all there is to Jesus and his identity. Because this image also represents Christ's identity. Christ the warrior king the king that comes back to make war and finally and permanently put an end to his enemies. The king who brings to bear the full weight and the fury of God's wrath and judgment. The king who comes back to kill and to punish and to vanquish any and all who will stand against him and his rule. Jesus, the warrior king. And so many people even People in the church want to ignore this Jesus or pretend that he doesn't exist or try to explain away this part of the scripture or just, you know, that describes Jesus this way. This, this Jesus is offensive to our culture. This is the Jesus that hurts people's feelings. This is the Jesus the world hates. Jesus, the warrior king. But no matter how you slice it, this is how the scriptures reveal Jesus to be. And just as importantly, we, hear me, we need Jesus to not just be king, but to be the warrior king. We need him to be that. The fact is, if Jesus isn't the warrior king and he doesn't come back and put an end to his enemies and all who stand against him, you and I have no hope. I mean, we have to understand that. We have to just let our preconceived ideas go and understand what the scriptures are saying to us because our hope is not that we will live a pain-free, problem-free in this life. That is not the hope that you live for. If that's the hope you're living for, that is too small a thing to live for, and guess what? You will be disappointed in the end. Right? Your hope is not to have a better job. Believe me, right? it'd be nice, right? But that's not your hope. Your great hope is not to have a car that starts every morning. Believe me, it's important, but that is not your hope. Your hope is not that your favorite political party will gain power in America. I don't care what your favorite politician says. That is not the hope that you're living for. Your hope isn't for everyone to like you or to think well of you. Though many of us are people pleasers, including this guy. 
Our hope isn't to have enough money for retirement or, and, and spend the rest of our days on the beach collecting seashells. Our hope, by the way, you should Google John Piper and seashells and listen to that sermon. It will change your life. Right? Our hope is there is coming a day when Christ will return and finish what he began. The plan of redemption where he makes all things right, all things new, and he puts an end once and for all to the sin that plagues us and the enemy who continually hunts us. When Jesus Christ returns and restores creation to what it was created to be, where we live forevermore in his glorious presence as we were created to live without fear, without shame, without guilt and pain and loss, where we finally live in a world that is not broken. That is our hope for Jesus who, who already saved us from the penalty of the sin, who is saving us right now from the power of sin, will one day rid us in the world from the presence of sin and all that who oppose him. We need Jesus the King as we talked about last week and we need Jesus the warrior king. And that is the Jesus we see in Revelation 19. So turn with me to Revelation 19 and, and we'll quickly go through this. I want you to know I could spend a month of Sundays just on this, but I won't do that for, to you. The Apostle John writes, beginning in verse 11, in chapter 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The Apostle John, and make no mistake, this was the Apostle John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos, records in the book of Revelation the vision of God that God had given him, which ultimately is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you ever want to ask me what, what is Revelation about, I'm going to say it's about Jesus Christ. Right? As Bodhi Bauckham says, it's not a puzzle book, it's a picture book of Jesus. Now John had written his, his Gospels and his three letters that bear his name, but he also wrote the book of Revelation. And there is a lot of debate about how to interpret this book, and there's a lot of debate about how to understand the imagery in this book, and there's a lot of debate on how this reveals the end of all things. And I want you to know this morning we are not going to be able to settle that debate in the time that we have left. There's way too much to talk about and too many things to cover. Right? In fact, one day I hope actually soon to teach a class on eschatology and the differing perspectives of Revelation and the end times. And my hope is as we go through that together that I'll give you enough information that you actually have a chance to think through the issues for yourself and not just what some guy tells you. And that way you can draw your own conclusions. Right? And hear me, end times theology or eschatology is not essential to your faith. Whether you're dispensational or covenantal, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or premillennial, amillennial, post-millennial, or pan-millennial, or if you don't even know what I even just said, none of that's important to your faith anyway. It's not essential for you. Right? Those are important discussions to have, but that's not essential to your faith. What's essential to your faith is that you trust and you believe that Jesus Christ is in fact coming back and he does so in victory. That's what we see here is the return of the king. John sees heaven opened and Jesus returns. And what we need to realize is, is Jesus had been up to that point at the right hand of the father interceding for his saints until that time, until he put his en enemies under his feet as a footstool. 
but he comes back and finishes his redemptive work by, by conquering his enemies. John says, behold, a white horse. And as mentioned, a king riding on a horse meant war, and a white horse in that culture, in the Roman culture especially, meant victory. And John tells us that heaven opened up and the victorious king, king comes riding out on a, on a white horse. This imagery is a symbol of the fact that Christ is completely and totally victorious. Brothers and sisters, if you need courage today, you just need to remember that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, is victorious. That ought to encourage you. The one that you hope in, the one that you're trusting in, the one that you're leaning on when all goes dark. He cannot ever be defeated. He cannot be put down. He is victorious, which means even though we suffer in this world, if we trust in Him, we too are already victorious. If you're in Christ today, brothers and sisters, be encouraged in that, that no matter what comes your way, that nothing can snatch you out of His hands. You realize that, right? That if you're in Christ today, that no matter what is thrown at you, they can't take away from you what you needed the most anyway, which is the righteousness of Christ. Right? And then Jesus, then John goes on to describe this king in, in highly symbolic language. And, and, and it's imagery that communicates a number of important details about Jesus and his return. John writes, the one sitting on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and make war. One of the names given to the writer is faithful and true. And, and, and that's because he is the faithful and true king. We've talked about this before, but it bears mentioning again that, 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 that there have been many kings throughout history right, who were given by God to protect the kingdom from the enemies outside, right? And they were given to protect the kingdom from each other inside of the kingdom, protect each other from, from each other when you sin, to bring right, to, I mean justice. And the king was given to, to bring peace, justice, and righteousness to the kingdom. And all of these kings in history have pointed forward to the great king who would one day come. But all, for all they have done that that was good, for all that they had, had done that was right, all of these kings, as we know, were flawed, and they all failed in some way. Moses failed in his frustration as he led the people. He lost the rights to be able to enter into the land. David fell, failed as he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered. Solomon failed as he fell into deep idolatry over women. Every king that has ever lived, every, every leader that has ever put on the mantle of leadership has failed in some way for all of their strengths. None of them have been completely faithful and true, but Jesus Christ, in contrast, has never failed and will never fail because He is the great King. He is faithful. He is true. He is the perfect king, and he is the one who will finally bring perfect peace and perfect justice and perfect righteousness, all that we look forward to. Jesus is the king that will never let us down. Praise the Lord for that. 
Jesus is the king that will never fail you. Every person in your life, every person in this world will fail you. Every politician, every celebrity, every leader, every boss, every employee, every family member, every friend, every pastor at some point will fail you in some regard. But Jesus, the faithful and true king, never fails you. Notice that he doesn't ever fail. But also notice he does not come back in peace. John says, Jesus judges and makes war in righteousness. And I've said this before, but it stands... But this right here stands in contrast to the the postmodern, post-Christian, seeker-sensitive, pragmatic church message of our age. Because the message that's preached, it seems, all the time around us is Jesus came to bring peace to the earth and Jesus didn't come to judge and Jesus didn't come to condemn and, and Jesus accepts everyone as they are in their authentic self. That's the message that that's being proclaimed in more and more pulpits, especially this month. That Jesus came to bring peace and he didn't come to condemn anyone. That Jesus didn't come to judge. The message is that Jesus is all loving and all accepting of everyone regardless of their sin. And I want you to understand me. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Jesus loves sinners. That's why he did what he did. Look at the cross. Look at the awful and terrible price that he paid. And he certainly reached out to them. He met them where they were. We talked about the woman at the well, how he tore down the barriers to be near her. But he never, ever condoned them in their sin. He never, ever, ever condoned their sinfulness. Instead, he called them to repent. In fact, what was the very first message of Jesus Christ recorded in the Gospels? Repent and believe the gospel. We even heard him say the words, go and what? Sin no more. By the way, that's the call of the gospel today, right? Is what? Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your old life and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because he will come back. And when he does, he will judge and make war. And he will do so in righteousness. Christ will uphold God's righteous standard. He will uphold God's righteous law. Everybody wants to think that the law has been done away with. It hasn't been. The law for us is a mirror for us to see our need for salvation. But it is still the standard by which he will judge all of mankind. And we would be judged by the same thing. Our saving grace is that we are judged by Christ's righteousness, not our own. But make no mistake, the law is not gone. Jesus will uphold the law. And let us not be deceived when he comes back. He comes back to make war on the wicked. The very next thing that John says is his eyes are like a flame of fire and his head on his head are many diadems. And obviously Jesus' eyes aren't flames, Right? Again, this is symbolic language, and it's a metaphor for the fact that Jesus is pure in all that he sees. The idea is that that the king who reigns and judges sees everything. Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
whom we must give account. You see, there's not a part of our lives, there's not a part of our hearts, there's not a part of our thoughts that are hidden from, from Jesus. There's no getting away with anything. Jesus knows your mind. He knows your every thought. He knows your intentions. He knows your actions. He even knows the things that you think and do that you think are hidden from the rest of the world. And and by the way, this is terrifying for sinners because there's not an escape from God's gaze. We can't fool him. How many times in my own life have I thought that I could, even in my own thoughts, try to fool God and make him think that I'm thinking something else I wasn't thinking? We can't fool him. We can't dupe him. We can't mislead him. He knows us inside and out, and he will judge sinners by what they have done. And, and so this is terrifying for sinners because there's no escape. But, the, but this truth is also hope-inspiring for believers for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know that even though that, that God knows all there is to know about us and He still knows all the stupid things that we've done and will do and how awful and terrible we have been and still can be, He still sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place. What love. I mean, it's, it's loving for you to love someone and, you know, and, and to help them but do you still have that same attitude knowing that they're still going to do stupid things or maybe even try to retaliate or hurt you in the process? God loved us in spite of us. Knowing what we would do, He knows us inside and out. Right. Secondly, this is hope-inspiring because we know that God sees us in our pain. He knows the wrongs that are perpetuated against us. He knows, you know, He knows all that's done to us, even if no one else knows or believes us, which ultimately means he will not let injustice go unpunished. No one who wrongs us can escape God's justice. You understand that, right? This is why we can trust him to save us, and we can trust him to do what he needs to do when he says that vengeance is mine. That's why we can trust him when he says, love your enemies. Again, R.C. Sproul says it very well. The surety of Christ's return to destroy all his and our enemies is important an important truth for life in the present because we know that God will perfectly judge his foes and we can leave vengeance to his hands and show patience, even love to our enemies. Loving your enemies is possible because we know that he sees it all and he won't let them get away with it. Jesus sees all and knows all and he judges in perfect righteousness. Next, John says that he has many diadems or many crowns. And this actual English language can be so generic that you miss the point. The word many here actually in Greek means multitudinous, not just many. Because for us, many could be a handful or can be like a bazillion, right? Well, it's more the latter. The idea that's being communicated here is that he has many, 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 many crowns. And and the point that that John is making in this imagery is that Jesus Christ has all the crowns, that he has all authority, that he is all-powerful, that he is unrivaled, that there is no equal. We sang that this very morning. We sing that for a reason, because it's true. There is no rival or equal. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, as he said in Matthew chapter 28. That's why he can give us the command. 
Christ reigns over all other kings, over all other powers, over all governments and authorities. That's why when the government does something you don't like, just understand, right? They're not going to get away with their evil because God is still sovereign over them too. Which means our faith in Jesus and our trust in him is not misplaced, by the way. Because he can and will accomplish all that he promised. Even when the world is dark and it doesn't seem like it. And then John goes on and says, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I read a number of commentaries, and there's some debate about this, but, but, but the reality is there's a, there's, a, there's a point being communicated by this that's, that's really kind of easy to miss but is quite simple for us to understand. This fact that we can't know his name points to his divinity. That's the point, that Jesus himself is divine. Right? What do we talk about? What do we know about God and His divine nature? That His attributes are beyond our imagination to fathom. That He is timeless. That He is transcendent. That He is immaterial. That He is, that, that, that he is infinite. Things that our minds can't wrap our hands around. If we can't wrap our hands around those things, how would we be able to know His name? That's the point. As we talked about before in part one, Jesus is God. It's the, the idea that John is communicating. And then John says the king has, has clothes that are, that are or a robe that was dipped in blood, which we ought to ask then, what, then whose blood? Now, some have said that it's the, his enemy's blood, but the problem is chronologically, he hasn't actually went to war yet. So whose blood then? It's his own blood. Because it's by his blood that we're set free. It is by his blood that the world has been reconciled back to God. Notice that immediately following him are those in white robes washed by his blood. By the way, it's this blood, this sacrifice of his blood that his enemies today still spurn. As Voltaire said, the blood of Christ, the blood of pigs, same thing. It's amazing to me, by the way, how blasphemous our world can be. The blood is a symbol of what he has accomplished for those who believe it's the beauty, it's, it's the beauty of, of his grace. For, for those who, who don't believe, it's an offensive symbol that even now people scream and rail against. James Hamilton, in his commentary on Revelation, says that this. He says, Jesus conquered his enemies by shedding his blood on the cross, and when he turn, returns, he will conquer his enemies by shedding their blood. So which conquest involves you? If you trust in Jesus, his blood was shed for you. If you rebel against him, refusing him to, to, to have him as Lord and obey him as king, your blood will be shed for him. And then John continues and says, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now to this point, in this little short passage, Jesus has been given three names, faithful and true, and a name that no one can, can, can know. And then it says that he is the word of God. And this name should immediately, if you know who John is, should immediately take you back to the gospel of John, to the very beginning of what he said in the gospel there. John 1.1, 1, 1, it starts with, in the beginning was Logos, the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
by the way, I got to praise the Lord for Matt with the songs that he picks. It perfectly goes with everything I'm talking about today. I just give him the text I'm preaching on, and then he just does the rest through prayer. And The name, the Word of God, ought to remind us that Christ is eternal, that He is the second member of the Trinity, and that He is the revelation of God to the world for us, and that He is the creator, and He is the sustainer, and He is the life giver of all that are living. And this Word is coming back into the world on a white horse as a conquering warrior to make all things new or what we call recreation. He's recreating the new heavens and the new earth, which is what we see in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Jesus, the word, as the conquering king, makes all things right and all things new. And then John writes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron. And notice that Jesus doesn't have to carry his sword in his hand. In fact, he doesn't have to carry any man-made weapon anyway. The sword comes from his mouth and we know that this isn't a literal thing, right? I mean, the picture we saw, you know, is an illustration of that, but that's not a literal thing. What we know is this is a metaphor, a symbol for the word of Christ or the word or the proclaimed word of God. And the thing that we need to realize is that Jesus doesn't need tanks or bazookas or B-2 bombers or even an army to defeat all of his enemies. All is required is simply his word. By the word of God, all of creation leapt into existence. The universe is over 96 billion light years across. That's the part that we can see, which we know is infinitely bigger than that, more complex than we can possibly imagine. And it all came into being by the word of God. And by the word of God, mankind was redeemed. And by the word of God, when the men came to arrest Jesus in the garden, and he said, I am, they fell on their faces by his power. And by the word of God, all of his enemies will be conquered and vanquished. By the way, how do you think that we as Christians are to wage a spiritual warfare that we're to wage in this world? Is it through violence or coercion? No, it's by the word of God. And this leads us to something we need to come to terms with, by the way, with respect to the word of God. The word of God, I want you to hear me on this, is both an instrument of healing and a weapon of war. And... and as, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, and then the lawless uh, one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with his breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearing of his coming. Or how about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or how about Paul who, who tells us Christians to put on the full armor of God? He says, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The thing that we need to understand and see from the scriptures and allow ourselves to embrace and trust in is the truth that God's word can be both an instrument of healing and a weapon of war. And today, people love the first part, but they don't want to talk about the last part. But it's true. 
The word of God brings both healing and death. It brings peace and violence. For those who are being saved, it brings life and peace and healing. And for those who rebel against God, the word of God brings judgment, violence, and pain and death. The word of God is an instrument to heal and a weapon to kill. And, and the thing that we need to realize and understand is either way, whether healing or killing, the word of God cuts. It either cuts to remove from us our self-righteousness and our hardened hearts and our love for sin, or it cuts and puts us to death as we continue to rebel against the king. Either way, the word of God cuts. Either way, it hurts. How many of you ever had a surgery in your life before? Right? Getting cut was necessary for your healing. It still hurts. Either way, it hurts. Conviction from the word of God hurts. The conviction that leads to life hurts because the word of God cuts us in, cuts into us so we can finally see ourselves for who we really are. It helps us to finally look inwardly and recognize that we are sinners that spurn the love and the grace of God, that we are sinners who have chosen our way, that we are sinners who, who, are, who are God's own enemies. But coming to terms with that truth, being able to finally see that, experiencing that pain helps us to see the ugliness of our sin and that seeing that, we can see that we desperately, desperately, desperately need Christ and His love and His salvation. It is only then we actually come and be healed because people don't take the medicine unless they understand the diagnosis. Nobody will go through chemo, chemotherapy or radiation without actually knowing what it was for. The Word of God cuts us and it wounds us, but it's, it's that wound that allows us to be healed. Like a surgeon with a scalpel, God uses the Word to save us. And hear me, as we stand here on the third day of June, how dare we try to take the sting then out of the Word of God? How dare we try to dull the blade so that it won't cut or convict? You would no more stand in the, the operating room begging the, the surgeon not to use the scalpel on your loved one to save their life. How dare we? And I'm not saying, I want you to hear me, because when you, when you talk about telling people the truth and some people just automatically go the opposite direction and go, well, you're just a jerk and you're unloving. I'm never, ever a proponent of being unloving, right? We are to tell the truth in love, right? I'm not saying that we need to be forceful because you can't make people believe anything anyway, right? And I'm certainly not saying that we need to be a jerk because there is no license to do that and there's no cause to do that. In fact, if you're a jerk telling the truth, then you might even need to check your own heart to find out if you actually knew who Christ is anyway. But how dare we try to spare those around us from the truth that they desperately need to hear, the truth that brings life, the truth of who God is, the truth about who they are and the nature and the heinous nature of their sin, even the sins that the world is proud of. How dare we try to spare them the truth about the fate that awaits those who rebel and reject Christ at every turn? How dare we spare them of that? Because if they don't hear that, they'll never hear the truth about God's redemption and His grace. How dare we, in the name of compassion and acceptance and intolerance, you know, 
try to keep the sword of the Lord from cutting into the hearts of those we know and love. You're a par- if you're a parent, you know what it's like for, to see your kids have to go through necessary pain. Right? Try and pull a splinter out of a three-year-old's hand, and you'll know, right? They're freaking out. They don't understand, right? But you know it's got to come out. Hear me, brothers and sisters. One way or the other, the Word of God will cut them. One way or the other, the Word of God will cut them, either for conviction that leads to life, or one day when He comes, condemnation that leads to death. Because the Word of God is both an instrument of healing and a weapon of war. And it is that instrument that Jesus the King Himself wields for life and death. Because Jesus the King is both the great healer and the great warrior. He is the Savior and He is the judge of the nations. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and He is the Lion who destroys His enemies. Again, listen to the words of John. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, hear these words, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Words conveniently that get forgotten by the world around us. Jesus is not only the Savior Right? To those who put their faith in Him, He is also the instrument of God's judgment. He is the instrument of God's wrath. He is the one who does both. He rescues sinners from the wrath of God, and He is the one who pours out the wrath of God on those sinners who refuse Him. That is who Jesus is. He is the one who dispenses grace and wrath. And let us then this morning just gaze upon His glory for both of those things because God will be glorified for both, for His redemption and His justice. Let us gaze upon His glory and never allow ourselves to fall into a one-dimensional perspective of, 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 of Christ our King because the world's pushing us to it. He is the spotless, sinless lamb who was slain, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah who will one day go out and slay. He is the gracious Savior who receives all who come to him by faith, but he is also the great judge who condemns and casts away those who spurn his grace. He is the best friend of those who are saved, and he is the worst enemy of the unrepentant. He is the warrior king. And as John says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the undisputed sovereign of the entire universe. No one or nothing can withstand him. And we will either fall on our knees seeking his mercy or we will fall on our knees to receive his judgment. But there will come a time, as the Word of God tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He came into the world to bring peace and He's coming back to bring with Him war and fury and the wrath of Almighty God. And that, brothers and sisters, is our hope. And some of you might be going, wait a minute, Pastor Sherman, how in the world is that our hope? That sounds so scary and so dramatic. How could that be our hope? It's our hope because when Christ comes back, he will finally put down all of his enemies forever, including Satan, 
including sin, including death, and all those who hate him and all those who would seek to do his harm. And in so doing, he will make all things new. He will restore things to be as they were supposed to be, which is promised in Revelation 21. These are words that, that, that comfort me and strengthen me at every turn. I think that you need to, to hear them and memorize them. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, because we've been reconciled. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, Jesus, the conquering king, is the one who finally puts an end to all of our pain, and all of our sorrow, and all of our doubt, and all of our, our hurts. It is Jesus, the warrior king, who puts an end to bitterness and strife and rebellion and, and broken relationships and cancer and poverty and suffering. It is Jesus, the warrior king, who brings victory finally to this world and we will have eternal peace and eternal justice and eternal righteousness never to fall again, never to stumble again, never to doubt again, never to cry again, never to miss our loved ones again, never to lose a loved one again. That, brothers and sisters, is our hope, and that is why we need Jesus to be the warrior king. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.